The scripture reading is from John 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So the event that is described in this passage took place the evening of the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, today we might say this happened the evening of the first Easter. And at this point in the biblical narrative, the disciples had already heard from numerous sources that Jesus had risen. Uh, the women, remember the women that went to the tomb early in the morning to embalm the body of Christ, they, they had reported that they found the tomb empty and that they had seen uh, what appeared to be angelic beings who spoke to them of a resurrection that had happened. Uh, P Peter and John had also gone to the tomb, and they had also confirmed that, yes, indeed, the body was missing, and that, strangely, the grave clothes that the body had been wrapped in were just sitting there, no longer in use. Uh, Mary Magdalene told everyone uh, just straight out that Jesus was alive. She said she had seen him with her own eyes. She had spoken to him face to face. And this was confirmed by the words of, of two other disciples who had, had met with the risen Christ as they walked along the road to this place called Emmaus. So at this point in the story, you need to understand the disciples, they had already heard many times that Jesus was risen. But apparently, this uh, wonderful message had not done much to change their lives. Verse 19 says the disciples were together with the doors locked, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So even though they heard that Christ has conquered, Christ is alive, they're still in hiding. They're still afraid. They're still just defeated and discouraged, completely demoralized by what had happened on Good Friday. So these are people who have heard the Easter message, but there were still many ways in which their lives were unchanged by it. And to be honest with you, I can relate to that. Can you? I mean, listen, we, we all love Easter, right? I mean, we love the, the songs and the flowers and the cute children in their new clothing, and we just love this message of a, of a, of a living Savior. But would you agree with me that very often we're kind of like these, these disciples, even though we've heard the message many, many times, Christ is alive. Aren't there still a lot of ways that our lives haven't really been changed by that yet? I mean, maybe you still struggle with anger. 
right? Just ongoing struggle for you. Or maybe you still find yourself sometimes controlled by anxiety or worry. Or maybe, maybe you really have a hard time forgiving other people. You know that God has forgiven you, but it's just so hard for you to forgive. Or maybe there are certain bad habits. You're kind of ashamed of them, and, and, and yet you just can't get control over these things. So we're kind of like these disciples. We've heard the message, right? But there are some ways that it hasn't yet changed us. So let me ask you a question. What do you think Jesus does with people like that, people like us? What do you think Jesus does with people who've heard the Easter message again and again and again, but there's some, there are some ways that their lives are still a mess? Well, listen, judging from his actions in today's passage, I would say he does, here's what he does. Even though we've heard the message, there are ways we're still unchanged, Jesus comes to us in love, and he gives us three things, all right? What does he give us? Well, first, he gives us a word of peace, word of peace. Verse 19, on the evening of that first day when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. You see that again in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? The first word out of Jesus' mouth to his disciples after rising from the dead, the first thing he said, peace. Now, I, I think there's probably a lot of meaning packed into that little word, peace. For one thing, I, when he said this, I think Jesus was speaking peace to them with regard to their sins. If you know the story, you know what happened. The disciples, the, the disciples had abandoned Jesus, right, when he was on the cross. I mean, these were men who had pledged their undying loyalty to Jesus as the Messiah, but in the hour of his deepest need, they had all just cut and run. They'd all left him. They'd all abandoned him. Peter, the, you know, one of the, the leaders, he had even denied that he knew Jesus at all. So these are, this is a group of people who are, are coming fresh off of a, a major moral failure in their lives. They'd failed Jesus. And isn't this, man, isn't this amazing? When he comes to them, he doesn't scold them. He doesn't accuse them. He does not condemn them. He just says, peace. I'm sure they understood him to mean by that word, my friends, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. Yeah, you failed me, but you're forgiven. And isn't it amazing to know that's, guys, that's what he does for us as well. I mean, I can't count how many times I've failed the Lord, right? And yet Romans 5 verse 1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is that the atoning death of Christ on the cross absolutely guarantees God's forgiveness for anyone and everyone who trusts in Christ. He offers us peace. So first, that word has all this meaning to it. It means peace with regard to their sins. Secondly, it just means peace with regard to their circumstances. Verse 19 says the doors were locked out of fear of the, of the religious leaders. The disciples were afraid. And if you ask me, they were afraid for good reason. I would have been afraid. 
mean, these, these uh, the, the uh, authorities in their city who had just killed Jesus, those authorities were still out there. They, they were still in power. They still had lots of, of soldiers that would do what they said, and, and very likely they're, they're out there looking for Christ's disciples to, to kill them. So they, they had reason to fear, right? That they had, there were circumstances in their lives that were frightening. And I'm wondering if there are any circumstances in your life that are frightening or discouraging or heartbreaking. Maybe um, you have troubles in your home or problems with your health or maybe you're facing crises in your finances or in your immigration status or in some interpersonal conflict that you just can't work, so, work out. So like, just like these disciples, we can relate to this, right? We, there, are, there are circumstances in our lives that could just cause us to shake with fear. And I think what this passage says to us is, guys, listen, no matter what is going on in your life, you do not have to be afraid. You know why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And if you just think about it, man, if he could rise from the dead, what can he not do, right? Now, you know, in some, uh, in some video games, some video games are fighting games. So uh, you, your little avatar goes out there and he has to fight against another opponent, right? He's throwing punches and kicks and, you know, perhaps throwing balls of fire, depending on the game, right? He fights against an opponent. And if you beat that opponent, what happens? You go on to the next level. You face another opponent who is, of course, a little bit harder to fight against, a little bit faster, a little stronger, a few more weapons to use against you. If you defeat that opponent, you go on to the next level. And the goal of the game is to defeat all this series of opponents and make it to the highest level of the game where you face the final enemy, who is the fiercest, meanest, strongest, fastest. And if in, in a game like that, if you can defeat the final enemy, that proves not only that you can defeat the final enemy, that proves that you've already beaten every other enemy in the entire game. It just, it just proves you dominate that video game if you can beat the final enemy. You know that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that our final enemy is death. It says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hebrews chapter 2 says that throughout their entire lives, the devil holds people in bondage to their fear of death. Death is the final enemy. And you know what the news is? Jesus conquered death, right? You know, there, there are some churches where if I said that, somebody would at least say amen to that. Like Jesus conquered death. Understand this, when we say Jesus conquered death, we don't mean he just kind of barely squeaked out a win. You know, it's the it's last seconds of, of overtime and it's, it's a buzzer beater shot and he just barely won by one point. No, that's not what we mean. When we say he conquered death, guys, Jesus crushed death. He annihilated death. Death is dead. First, First Corinthians 15, verse 54 says, death has been swallowed up in victory. You know, the, the Bible tells us, the Bible is so clear on this, the Bible tells us that Christ's tomb is not the last tomb that will be found to be empty. Amen? Ours will be too. Amen? 
First, first uh, John, John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. So death is the final enemy, and Jesus already took care of that. So here's the question that, you know, the, the Easter question that just confronts us is, is, guys, if Christ can conquer death, do you really think there's anything in your life he cannot handle? Come on. Jesus showed them his hands and sides. He's like, guys, time to unlock the doors, right? Like, you know, he says, guys, you know what I did? I just marched into the gates of hell and I just completely overthrew the entire dominion of darkness. You're telling me you're still afraid of a few old rabbis. Unlock the doors. There's nothing you need to fear. So his first word to People like us who've heard the Easter message again and again and again, but we're still, we're still struggling. His first word is peace. He gives us a word of peace, meaning your sins are forgiven and you have nothing to fear. So first, he gives a word of peace. Secondly, you'll notice, he gives us a sense of purpose. Sense of purpose. Um, Dr. Stephen Taylor is a professor of psychology at Leeds University in England. This is what uh, Dr. Taylor has written. He says... The need for purpose, the need for purpose is one of the defining characteristics of human beings. Human beings crave purpose and suffer serious psychological difficulties when we don't have it. Purpose is a fundamental component of a fulfilling life. Now listen, if that's true, if that's true, it would seem to me that a lot of people are in trouble. I mean, many, many people, people in our city, in this neighborhood, just really, if, if they're honest, they have no higher purpose to life than just get up in the morning, go to work, pay the bills, come home, watch Netflix, go to bed, get up the next day and just, you know, rinse and repeat, just do the same thing over and over again until someday that you, you die. So a lot of people in this world really struggle with this. They have no sense of a higher purpose for their life. But guys, listen to me. As followers of Christ, that's not the case for us. That's not the case for us. Verse, verse 21 says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And then he said this, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, if you've read the Gospel of John, you, you may be aware that in the Gospel of John, uh, the, the Gospel very often talks about the fact that Jesus had been sent. He is the sent one, right? So he is sent to do the will of the Father. You read that in, in chapter 6. He is sent to speak the words of God. You read that in chapter 3. He is sent, chapter 4 says, to reap a harvest of human souls for eternal life. Uh, chapter 17 says he is sent to bring glory to God the Father here on earth. So Jesus was sent in other words, he, his, his life had meaning. His life had, uh, had a purpose. There was a reason for him to be here. And now he says to us, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. In other words, the, the, the redemptive purpose of the Father initiated in the work of the Son is now continued in this world through the lives of his followers. The redemptive purposes, purpose of God initiated in, in, in the work of His Son is now continued in this world, world through us. He, we have a purpose. 
for our lives. And if, according to verse 23, this purpose is of eternal significance. Verse 23 says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Why, don't you wonder at that verse? Through the years, people have wondered, what did he mean? And there have been different views uh, of, of the meaning of this in, in, uh, through the years. The Roman Catholic Church has understood this to say that, that God has given to the church, in particular the Roman church, the authority to forgive people's sins. That's why in that tradition, it's important to go to a priest to make confession of sin. Protestants have viewed this differently. They've understood this to be speaking of, of the church's authority to proclaim an authoritative gospel to the world, to go to the world and, and, and to, to declare to the people of this world the basis upon which they can be made right with God, just to proclaim the message of forgiveness of sins and eternal life to this world. So there have been different views, and whatever view you take and whatever you think about this, I'm sure you would agree that John chapter 20, verse 23, um, is telling us that what we do as the church affects eternity. I mean, it has eternal significance. I don't know if you've thought about that, but guys, our, our presence as a congregation in this neighborhood all right, in, in this part of Western Queens, will be used by God to impact whether people go to heaven or to hell. There's an eternal significance. As we live for God as a congregation and as we encourage each other to do that, as we hold forth the word of the gospel in our various ministries, as we intercede together in prayer for, for the lives of others, and then as, as we make the teaching about Jesus attractive uh, through our works of love and mercy and justice in, in this neighborhood. Guys, listen to me. The eternal destiny of individuals around us is impacted by what we do. Man, you talk about having a purpose for your life. Imagine, imagine, you know, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, you go out early and there's your neighbor walking his dog and he says, hey, how are you? What'd you do this weekend? Well, you, you could say, eh, I went to the park. Eh, I went to the gym. Eh, I went to Costco's. Eh, you know, I cleaned the house. You could say those things. Nothing wrong with that. Well, imagine, imagine if you said to your neighbor, what did I do this weekend? Same thing I do every weekend. I helped change eternity, right? And your neighbor would think you're nuts, but he'd say, what do you mean by that? And, and, and you could say, listen, here's what I mean. By the mercy of God, and it's only by the mercy of God, I am a member of a community of people who have been commissioned by Christ to continue the redemptive work that his father gave him to do in this world. As the father sent him, he has sent us. Your neighbor still doesn't know what you mean. So you say, ah, I went to church. <laughs> I went to church. But guys, listen, um, for, do you realize how significant it is what the body of Christ is doing for the glory of the Father in this world. For all of eternity, the, the work that God does through the church uh, will resound for His eternal glory. First, first Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, uh, verse 15 says to, this is for any local church, it says, we are God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So what does Jesus do for people who've heard the message again and again? They're still struggling. 
Well, first, he gives us a word of peace. You are forgiven. You have nothing to fear. Secondly, he gives us a sense of purpose. I am sending you. And then thirdly, you'll notice, he gives us the Spirit's power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22 says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, students of the Old Testament will say, wait a minute, something about that sounds familiar to me. That sounds familiar. I think it's intended to sound familiar. What Christ does here, this this sort of prophetic act of breathing on them and talking about the Spirit, I think it's intended to bring to mind what God did in Genesis chapter 2 at the creation of the very first human being. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. What transformed Adam in the garden from being merely a lifeless lump of clay into being a living being created in the image of God, it was the breath, the wind, the Spirit of God. In Hebrew, it's all the same word. The breath, the Spirit of God blowing into his lungs. In the same way, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to anyone who trusts in Him to transform us, to empower us to live for the glory of the Father. I I think you could read this and say, well, the first creation began with God breathing life into Adam. The new creation begins with Jesus breathing the Spirit of life into His followers, into us. So breathing on his disciples like this, it's a prophetic act. I think Christ is just sort of acting out that which will be fulfilled a few weeks later on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out in power on the church. And in coming weeks, we'll be talking about this more and more in in our church. For now, let's just ask the question, why do we need the Spirit? I think you know the answer. Because, listen, we could never accomplish the work that Christ gives us to do, or even live for His glory without the power of the Spirit in us. And the good news is, He gives the Spirit in abundance. Amen? So, how many Easter's have you celebrated? Me? It's a lot. How many times have you heard Jesus is risen? How many of you, times have you heard about the empty grave? If you're like me, you've heard it, and you've heard it, and you've heard it, and yet still, oh, I'm such a mess. What does Jesus do with people like us? Well, what he did with those disciples, he comes and he says, peace. Peace, you're forgiven, I love you. Peace, you don't have to fear. I conquered the grave. And he says, more than just peace, I have a purpose for you. I'm going to use you, your community of faith, to change the world. And I give you the power of the Spirit. That's good news, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the message of the empty tomb and a risen Savior, this is not just news to file away and think about. This is news that changes everything. It changes everything. So we thank you for the power and the reality of the resurrected Savior. We thank you that he offers forgiveness and freedom and joy and power today to all of us and to anyone who trusts in him. 
We rejoice in that, and we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen.